Hey folks, this is uh, Ben Burke, and I'm here with my buddy Jordan Stewart. Uh, last time we recorded a podcast, we thought, you know, we got a pretty good vibe going, so we're uh, trying like our own our own dual host kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I uh, held uh, up a knife and I said, Bennett, um, we have to do a podcast <laughs> or I'm going to cut this mango in half and we're going to share it. And, and the mango, the mango is delicious. Yes, very real mango. This is not made up story. Uh, the only fictional thing about it is the mango itself uh, was not real. Um, so today we are gonna kick off our new podcasting projects with a little chat about soccer, and we might split this up into uh, two parts. There's a lot to cover, but uh, why, why, why do you want us to do a, a soccer podcast, Jordan? So uh, recently, um, Austin, Texas was the largest uh, market, so to speak, in the United States without a professional sports team. And uh, we just had minor league sports, a lot of minor league sports, and caught in the University of Texas, which I did not attend. Um, Bennett actually attends the University of Texas. I so, do currently attend yeah, the University of Texas. There's a connection, has an orange blood there. But for me, uh, we just uh, never had anything here. Uh, the San Antonio Spurs, whom I love and would give my life to, are the closest thing we have to professional team here. But then uh, it was announced that uh, the uh, this uh, this guy Anthony Precourt, this billionaire, was going to move the beloved Columbus Crew of the MLS to Austin, Texas. Uh, while I always wanted a team, there was uh, a, for me and maybe others a, a bit of a reservation about taking a, a well-liked, uh, established team from a, a place that has fans and bringing it out here. So uh, that didn't happen, thankfully. A local ownership group saved the team, and then MLS correctly recognized that Austin was just a no-brainer market. Um, we are the fastest-growing city in the country, uh, which is good and bad, depending on how you're talking about it. but. Uh, we have a lot of, you know, we just crossed a million people. The metro area has crossed the two million people. Um, and it is an ideal soccer market in a lot of respects. Uh, MLS does well uh, in Portland and Seattle, Vancouver. It also does well in Los Angeles. Uh, and Austin kind of combines the two, you know, elements. You have a, a large, like, uh, soccer uh, prone, like, more of a liberal white fan base. And you also have a large Latinx fan base, which naturally which uh, is, uh, you know, comes from uh, cultural traditions where soccer is a dominant sport, which is literally anywhere south of the United States, uh, with the exception of the Dominican Republic and Cuba, where baseball is uh, the prime sport. So anyway, given that uh, we were getting a team and that I have personally grown an interest in the sport, I've really taken to it. I love Austin FC. I got to actually attend the game. They played at the LA Galaxy uh, last weekend when I was out there visiting friends. So that was cool. They lost because they're an expansion team. However, they've been doing quite well because in spite of being an expansion team, uh, two wins, three losses, lots of uh, vibrant watch parties. And the new stadium uh, opens in late June. And so after playing eight games on the road, we'll get to see them at home a lot. And there is a large, large interest in, in the city is simply buzzing. So given that that's our situation, I really wanted to like delve into the sport, uh, how intense it is globally, how much of a pol political angle uh, that there is to the way it operates, uh, different countries, both at the professional level, the club level, and then also uh, internationally, which we might cover more in the second half of this episode, of this uh, second part. I spent most of my, uh, you know, um you know, middle and high school life 
playing playing soccer and uh because of that i have a little bit of insight into the, you know more uh what it's like in the in the youth levels and the um like development of of, of like cultural attitudes about uh soccer in the u.s um so we'll talk a little bit about that as well but on the professional level we were just talking about um austin fc and this brand new team um and it's a pretty american thing that teams are just like materializing uh around like ownership and, and exchanges of money um because you know worldwide there there is very much a capitalist investment in soccer in the sense that you know a, a large number of teams in the big leagues in europe are owned by you know wealthy business people um you know, uh, Middle Eastern oil, oil royalty, stuff like that. Um, but there is a bit of like a historical basis for like working class and like community oriented, um, you know, groups basically or organically materializing these teams. Um, what, what do you know about like the, the that that kind of history and? And like the differences, because because the the MLS gets a lot of shit from, you know, overseas, uh, you know, soccer fans, you know, fans of soccer in in countries that are you know have a real soccer tradition. It's it's just a different world here in the U.S. Um, so I mean I mean like what are some of the differences, both like historical and just like kind of practically between the way the MLS functions and the way like you know the Premier League or something like that would would work. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that. That distinction is important uh, because uh, things that are normal to us are strange and exotic to them in terms of like Europe and like the way that club teams have always operated over there. Uh, MLS was formed in uh, which stands for Major League Soccer, which is already sort of an own goal of a name. It's like distinctly American. Yeah, it's, it's like it's, yeah. it just it uh, obnoxiously an American name for for the league. Uh, as in most of the world, soccer is called football or football or whatever it is in that language, but it, it usually starts with an F. And, and I do uh, have a quick little tangent I want to go on about the history of that. So if you're listening from Europe or South America or Latin America, I understand you might be upset at us for calling it soccer, but there's historical basis for that name that does not come from the U.S., and essentially, uh, soccer and football are both per perfectly fine names, and I'll get into that more later if, if we have time. Go go ahead. Sorry. No worries. Uh, that's that's good to point out uh, because like I do use the two kind of interchangeably depending on where in the world I'm talking about the sport. Because of course, in the United States, if you say football, or even in Canada, if you say football, you're talking about American football or Canadian football, which is just sort of like. Uh, American football, like uh, sponsored by Tim Hortons and the Three Downs. Uh, so no, like that. It's like it's definitely a, again one of those cultural things that there is a big difference between the cultural, the landscape of sports in the United States and how leagues are run and how teams are owned versus the way they were brought up in Europe and specifically England, where um, a lot of teams um, have histories that date back to the late 1800s, the early 1900s uh, that they formed because like you know. I think there's like Sheffield Wednesday, a club in the that just got relegated again to like the uh, the third tier of English football, uh, was formed because they were the the sporting group usually just played cricket on Wednesdays. And I was reading about Arsenal. It's really interesting, like team, like they have their logo with a cannon, and it's because it was formed by a bunch of guys who worked at the Arsenal. Like there's no like 
really they're, they're, these teams are simply have these ancient names because they were they were just based off of like what you know they represented and uh you know the united states were very quick to apply you know nicknames and like mascots to things uh that may not have any tangible um you know like connection to either the players like the houston texans in the nfl are a great example of that and i'll just leave it at that <laughs> and I, I think probably the most egregious example of that in the mls is probably real salt lake oh right um where they're they're <laughs> kind of just like taking the uh the like real prefix they're like oh that's a soccer thing um but it's like that's very distinctly like a spanish thing where if you have like royal sponsorship i guess they were talking about the kingdom of deseret um, yeah <laughs> maybe it's a mormon thing you know, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but uh the uh uh no but that that's the other contradiction of the mls is they became very it's, there's always this insecurity and inferiority complex inferiority complex about uh <laughs> about the uh uh the league and like how it's perceived and how it's seen as like a lower tier of 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 the sport uh and it's a place where you know aging ml uh european superstars will go to retire like thierry Henry and others uh have done that uh, david beckham famously joined the la galaxy which was sort of like i call it the league Gretzky moment and i'm what i mean by that is in the nhl when hockey was, you know, also not very popular in the United States outside of the Northeast and Upper Midwest, uh, Wayne Gretzky was traded from Edmonton, where he'd won four Stanley Cups with the Oilers, to Los Angeles. Easily the most, like, substantial actual trade in history, probably. But that moment, like, sparked a wave of interest in hockey in the United States that really grew the sport. And so I think of Beckham going to L.A., uh, technically the Galaxy playing Carson, but that's a Southern California thing to get into. Um, they, uh... Uh, when, when Beckham went there, it was, it was a similar moment. It gave the MLS some legitimacy where like, okay, like even if they're older, they're still coming here and they want to play here. And uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see that um, because uh, there has been a awkward sort of tr attempts to Europeanize the image of the league in a way where like, as uh, Vintage just mentioned the name Real Salt Lake, uh, you know, there's a... a there's a lot of this Inter Miami, like Inter Milan, uh, Sporting KC is the weirdest one. They used to be known as the Kansas City Wizards. So the league has kind of gone from having these hokey names that um, there's a great episode of King of the Hill that I'll talk about later, uh, but where Bobby Hill plays for the wind. And that was the kind of name that the, the teams had, you know, like starting off. And then it was now, the Dallas Burn. The Dallas Burn, who are now FC Dallas, which again, FC Football Club Dallas, Austin FC, Austin Football Club. Uh, it didn't even hit me like, you know, that's those are European style names because everyone knows what football actually is in Texas is something completely different. But like they're willing to do that now because the league stature has increased, but also an interest in the sport has increased, but also because they are really trying hard to maybe make the league seem less, you know, corny, for lack of a better word. And for what it's worth, I think that's a, a well, a slightly welcome change in in the sense that when we're looking at, you know, sports leagues um, in they're like you know branding and stuff they're all like hopelessly um capitalist in, in the sense that like there's no like grassroots ownership save for a few examples but um there you can tell like when a league has a more historical grounding in community like orientation because in the u.s the i'm not i'm not a fan of those like hokey names where there's like a a cool mascot like it feels like like youth stuff like i played on like the hurricanes when i was like 10 you know and it, it feels like when we're talking about like professional soccer it's like 
you know, why, why, why are we giving ourselves like what, what the, the names that like the 10 year olds plan? So I do appreciate the move away from like the more American names like that. But there is also the issue of like, there's no real basis for it in the sense that that's not like, that's not a thing Americans do. Yeah, it definitely like makes sense if it's the city name and FC that has more of a, okay, this is the city's team, um, you know, because we talk about the LA Galaxy, which actually is a cool sounding name and kind of kind of rolls off the tongue well. But then uh, later on, uh, a group led by Will Ferrell, uh, like started LAFC, uh, which is the stadium is more closer to downtown Los Angeles. And they try to brand themselves as the team for the city as a sort of a direct rival to LA Galaxy. And uh, that's okay, you know, like, because there's actually, it's like, okay, we're from the city. But, you know, when you just pick a name out of a hat because it sounds European and, like, let's go with it, um, definitely doesn't connect as well. And, you know, the old, some of the older NFL teams, which are kind of like, kind of the closest allegory in the United States, are really old NFL teams or baseball teams that have names that are very much of where they're from, like uh, the Green Bay Packers, because they had a, a big meatpacking industry there. Pittsburgh Steelers, obviously, it's Steeltown. Milwaukee Brewers. Milwaukee Brewers and baseball are a great example of that, and a lot of baseball teams have been around forever. And then there's, in the United States, unlike in Europe, you know, teams move, like, from city to city because of the hyper-capitalism. You know, you don't really have that in European football. Like, clubs can be relegated up and down, like, from the top league to the second league, for example, but they're not going to just, you know, like... Uh, you know, like Liverpool is not going to pack up and move to like, uh, you know, London or something. So they have more value uh, or something like that. But in the United States, you know, like a good example is like the Los Angeles Dodgers moved from Brooklyn in the late 50s. And the, the, the name has nothing to do with Los Angeles. It had to do with uh, people dodging streetcars in Brooklyn. Uh, Los Angeles Lakers moved there from Minnesota in the same decade uh, or same same issue like uh the lakers it was because minnesota has a bunch of lakes there's no lakes in los angeles but they kept the name so sometimes you have those weird relics in the united states utah jazz another great example uh, originally were the new orleans jazz so uh but in europe you have this constancy of like the team has been there the team's been there for a long time the team has always been you know maybe played in the same stadium or the same grounds that got rebuilt over the old grounds but there's a permanence to a less capitalized version of the sport. And so that gets into uh, something that we have to discuss in this context was the recent uh, kerfuffle, so to speak, over the European Super League. Now, to most American observers, it would make sense. You're taking, okay, we're gonna have a, mid, um, a mid-year league. First, uh, you have to start with an explanation of like how, how football works in Europe and soccer works in Europe. If you there's, like a, there's like a really strong, like you were saying, like a local basis in the sense that like, if you're from Southampton, you you root for Southampton. If you're from, you know, Norfolk, who has, like, some shitty team in, like, the third league, you yeah. root for them. You, you know, if you're from Millwall, you root for Millwall. It, it's not like a... It's not like this thing where, you know, you can kind of pick and choose and, like you said, move around. Um, and because there's such a, a you know, a, a historical basis for um, teams, there's these massive, expansive systems of tiers where there will be a top tier team in a European country, like the you know the English Premier League, for example, or the Bundesliga in Germany, and then there will be leagues underneath that. So you have the Championship in England, you have the Zweiten Bundesliga, um, and then it goes lower and lower and lower. And you can literally be a you know technically professional soccer player playing for your local sixth division team, and if you do well enough in the sixth division and finish first or second then you get to move up to the fifth 
and then the fourth and so on and so on so there's it's it's much more of a meritocracy in europe in the sense that you know if you perform well you go up and if you perform down you know instead of getting uh you know a higher draft pick you get kicked out of the league and you got to earn your way back in um and that doesn't happen that's a very foreign concept to americans um and, and unfortunately the mls it you know, there's the, the the structures just don't exist for that to be a, a process that can happen in the U.S. Right. It would be antithetical in the United States. Say we had a uh, for uh, you know instead of tanking for draft picks, uh, you know, uh, a team like the Orlando Magic, for example, say they like trade away their best players instead of getting a best uh, number one pick, they get relegated to the G League. Yeah. And then they have to play against the Rio Grande Valley Vipers and, you know, in the Santa Cruz Warriors the next season instead of like being the NBA. It's it's unfathomable to us sports fans. But yet that's the reality over there. Um, you know, Sheffield Wednesday, a random team I mentioned earlier, uh, Google their their crest. It's really cool. Uh, uh, they were uh, four-time league champions in England at the top of the first league back in the day, but now they find themselves in the third tier after this season. So uh, there's another team, Nottingham Forest, which these, these they almost sound made up if you've ever, you know, if you're, if you're over here, it's like, that's not real. But like uh, Nottingham Forest was, won the Champions League twice. The Champions League is the highest level of club competition. I'm about to talk about it. Uh, they won the Champions League twice. Now they're nowhere near the first tier of, 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 of English football. So, yeah, like it's possible to be champions and then 10 years later, because of financial troubles, which often is the case, clubs get into debt, like trying to uh, trying to bring in players for high transfer fees. And if they don't cover their debts, uh, they end up in trouble. So that also leads into this next topic. Um, yeah. And so the, you so you talked about the Super League. Um you know, if you don't if you don't know about soccer, um, you know, especially international soccer, like if you, if that's kind of new to you, um, how, what what like what what was the Super League and how is it like a divergence from the traditional model? Okay, so in in the uh, in UEFA, the uh, organizing body for European football, uh, they have a tournament, uh, different tournaments for uh, different levels, but they have the top one is called the Champions League, where Based off a, uh, they rank all of the country's leagues. Every country has a league. Every country has a top league. They rank all the country's leagues from like first to like 55th. And based off your placement, you send the number of teams to the Champions League. And the top leagues like La Liga, uh, you know, the Italian League, Bundesliga, uh, and of course uh, the Premier League in England all send four teams straight to the group stage, which is like the main season, if you will, of the Premier of the Champions League. And so the Champions League takes place during the regular seasons of all the national leagues. They just uh, they will just send they will just fly off to 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 Europe or somewhere or host a game and play these Champions League games in the midst of their season. So it's a very big deal, and the, the final is actually next on the 29th, uh, next uh, this coming Saturday between uh, Manchester City, which has never won it, and Chelsea, uh, which has had more success historically, um, and. But what happens is like to qualify, you know, you have to be the top four of, of 20 in the Premier League to qualify. And if you finish fifth, like Leicester City, uh, two, two, uh, two years in a row, Leicester stunned the world in 20, uh, 2015, 2016. Yeah, it would yeah. have been 2016. 2016 by like winning the Premier League when historically only four to six clubs had ever really had a chance of winning it. And they came out of nowhere to win it. And it was a big deal. Uh, but now, so now they're an established team. But the last two years, they've lost in the final match of the season. They've lost out on 
on making the Champions League and they finished fifth. But there are really well-money teams now that have been taken over by, you know, like by sheiks, by U.S. billionaires, by oligarchs, uh, by like people with a huge financial interests uh, that have, uh, you know, the Glazers, uh, the Glazer family's ownership of Manchester United, the most successful club in the Premier League, uh, is a great example of that. You know, and they, and uh, so basically what happened is, given that it's difficult to qualify for the Champions League and the, and the highest money best clubs don't always get in, they uh, organized a plan to create what was going to be called the European Super League, which would involve 12 teams uh, from, uh, at first, the Italian, uh, Spanish, and English leagues, uh, 12 teams that would eventually be, uh, three more were to be invited, and then there would be maybe some teams added year to year. But those 12 teams would always qualify for the European Super League, no matter what, no matter how badly they did in their, in their, in their, uh, you know, in their uh, respective leagues. And two of the teams, uh, Tottenham Hotspur and Arsenal, were nowhere near the top four uh, this year. In fact, Tottenham, I don't think, has won a title since like the early '60s. They've gotten close, but it's yeah. they, they, they never they, they they really do not come out on top. Yeah, and so it was all about it was so transparently just about financial interest of these like often you know American or you know billionaires uh, or people or billionaire owners and like high moneyed interests that flew in the face of that what we just talked about how. You know, club football in England was always about, and in, and in Spain, in Spain, and in France, and in Italy, and everywhere else is all about, you know, like actual competition and earning your way. You know, you've got to earn your way, and like there was, so this was met. This was announced like one day, and then immediately met by huge fan protests. Uh, given like COVID restrictions, uh, there were still no fans in the stadiums, but fans like immediately erupted uh, in, especially in England. Um, there was a huge protest in all of the cities uh, against uh, uh, even Manchester United fans who were just like had enough of you know like their ownership in this case trying to change literally change the sport completely. Like this is the equivalent of if, if uh, say like the NFL NFL teams were bought up by a bunch of like you know European billionaires and they come in and say okay we're going to create four NFLs at different levels and you know if you don't do well and you finish in the bottom three, you're going to be sent down to the second NFL. And like, so if this is the Dallas Cowboys, they're going to be playing against the, you know, um, like Topeka Rough Riders or something next season. Like, good luck. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's as antithet antithetical to us as, as our trying to impose our system, which is, you know, the United States, the leading capitalist station on earth, like the global hegemon. Uh, us applying our sports philosophy on, you know, something that, you know, is, is has some like purity still uh, in its system that has not been completely corrupted by money. It's been mostly corrupted, but and there's we can talk about FIFA in the second part of this episode because that's a that's a that's a fountain of corruption right there. Oh my God, yeah. But uh, yeah, in UEFA, you know, like the thing is like there's been corruption in UEFA. Like the, it's not a perfect system. There's always like there's nefarious things. There's money changing hands that shouldn't be changing hands. Like. Um, interestingly, you know, Manchester City, which had always been second to Manchester United for much of their history as, as the intercity rivals, were bought by uh, Sheikh Mansour uh, from Abu Dhabi, and he began, they, they began, the ownership group began to pour money into the team at the beginning of the last decade, and suddenly they were competitive, you know, because they were bringing in star players, but they also spent the money on developing, uh, you know, an academy and a strong player development system that was also bringing up players through the system, so now they're a powerhouse and they're playing in the Champions League final. And you know they had sort of like, 
position themselves as sort of like the anti-corruption team where they would always speak out against these nefarious things. So when they became the last team to sign on to the Super League, it was an absolute like, you know, crushing thing for their fans specifically uh, to deal with because, you know, like the, the we're better than this mentality really like hit hard, I guess. And it showed just how naked, like how naked the greed was with trying to form the Super League. And, uh, you know, European or in, and world soccer has, you know, wildly variant politics among the fan bases from, you know, the, you know, fervent anti-fascism of places like FC St. Pauli in Germany uh, to, you know, the, you know, outright, like, open and unabashed racism of, like, Beitar Jerusalem or, um, you know, some, some sections of Dresden or Italian teams. Uh, but... Soccer fans know something that's going to produce bad soccer when they see it. And the Super League would have been really bad soccer. Yeah, like, for one thing, you have, like, the same, you know, it's one thing, like, like, imagine if you took the top six teams in the NFL and just had them play each other twice a year. Like, eventually you get kind of tired of, of seeing, like, you know, the Patriots and Chiefs all the time. You know, like, or, or not the Patriots anymore, Tom Brady, wherever Tom Brady's <laughs> playing versus the Chiefs or the Packers and the Steelers, you know. <laughs> I totally forgot the last two years. Um so, uh, in like like Bennett just said, the um, like the Super League would have taken away like the 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 wonderful thing that is earning your way into you know the greatest club league in the world, which is the Champions League, which every year every team has to qualify for. The only way to qualify in advance is to just win it outright. And so uh, you know, it's really uh, like he mentioned too, like the, there's a political aspect to it. And uh, you know, three of the Spanish clubs that were behind it, Real Madrid and uh, Barcelona, uh, along with Atletico Madrid, I think, yeah. uh, they uh, you know are deeply in debt despite being some of the top clubs in the world because they're trying to keep up with this arms race of spending to get the top players, the top strikers. Uh, you know that when they change hands it costs a lot of money especially if they jump between leagues and then there were three Italian teams that were kind of in the same boat that joined they tried to convince uh, Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga they tried to convince Paris Saint-Germain who have been like one of the top teams in France for a while now to join and they apparently refused to join I guess they just they probably had more foresight to see that their fans were not going to be down because the Super League lasted all of two days and then was pretty much scrapped uh, Manchester City was the first team in they were, then they jumped right out because like uh, they evolved, you know, the, as my friend in Manchester, he's a big city fan, pointed out, like, they evolved, teams should know better. And, you know, eventually the other teams began to withdraw. The Glazers, you know, who own Manchester United, have been, like, apparently, you know, not really dealt or talked with their fans in a long time. Uh, it's a tradition of fan, of fan involvement in the direction of clubs in the past has been completely done away by them and by other wealthy interests. And so they have been like, okay, we see you, we hear you kind of like mantra, but the fans aren't having it and they continue to protest. So when they were going to play Liverpool, I think the following weekend uh, with um, a match with huge implications in the Premier League table this year, uh, the fans stormed the field during COVID and everything, uh, beat up some cops, stormed the field, and the game did not happen. The match didn't happen. And they completely canceled it because uh, they were, you know, just so furious with the situation. As a team that was, you know, you know, the club that was most for the Super League, you could argue, uh, in, in England at least, uh, had their fans were still just like deeply opposed to it. And you know, we talked about how like such a structure would have produced like worse soccer in comparison to the quality of play that the European leagues usually produce. And there's a lot of different factors that influence quality of play and like 
enjoyable to watch soccer. Um, but one of it is one of them is the structure of the league and you know the 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 stakes to the competition. And in the United States, as we mentioned earlier, we're already kind of structured like how the Super League would have functioned. So, you know, as as excited as it you know as exciting as it is to have finally a pro team in Austin, um, and you know, me and Jordan are, are Austin FC fans because we live in Austin and we love soccer. Um, as exciting as that is, and as as fun as you know the MLS can be to watch, it's not as good soccer as as Europe. You know, most European teams in you know top leagues or even second leagues could either you know hold their own if we're talking about the second leagues or absolutely demolish um, an MLS team. There have been a couple exhibition matches where you know like you know Manchester City or Bayern Munich come over and will like do an exhibition game with an MLS team and the European teams you know win with you know it's pretty much guaranteed that they'll win those games if they put in you know a little bit of effort um and you know there's like i said a lot of reasons why um you know american soccer is not as as high quality as european soccer um or even you know south american soccer i mean we're we're just talking about europe here but there's you know high quality play in, in in many continents um but the structure of the league is one thing we also need to look to the academies in Europe, you mentioned you know Manchester City's developing an academy. There's a huge historical tradition of clubs having academies, where for you know low cost to no cost, these clubs will invest in youth and 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 facilitate um, their training and their their play and fielding teams to you know teach youth the game early. Um, I mean. Leo Messi, one of the greatest in the world. I was just thinking about Messi yeah. going to Barcelona when he was like 12. Exactly. Like, His so. whole family was relocated yeah. like with with the financial support of the club because yeah. he was just such a promising prospect and and European clubs are willing to make that investment in their in their youth. Um, but in the US and I can speak to this personally, it costs a lot of money to play soccer. Um, and and, and soccer is like the working men's game. Like historically, you're talking about Jordan. The like the guys worked at the Arsenal, or they worked at you know they, they had like a community group that met after their factory jobs, stuff like that. That that's been you know turned on its head by the U.S. structure because sports is very much a, a capitalist endeavor in the U.S. and that extends to the youth leagues. It I played for. Um, a like I played for two different like small um you know like low level independent clubs as a in you know late middle school and through high school um not even like the high quality like academies like I didn't play for FC Dallas or or Houston Dynamo or or even like the the Texans or anything like that or like Texan FC um I, I played for these two small like independent clubs and even that was like uh, around two thousand um, dollars a year that you had to pay, kind of like on a on a on the turn of a hat. Is that an expression? Turn of a hat. I don't know. Something. <laughs> yeah, you had to pay with pretty short notice. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of money that you know a lot of working class people just don't have. Um, and 
you know, if you think about, oh, you know, $2,000 over a year, like, is that really that much? Well, maybe not. But we're, we're talking about people, um, you know, if somebody's living paycheck to paycheck, they can't, yeah. when their kid wants to play soccer, say, uh, oh, yeah, let me just write you a $2,000 check to pay for your club yeah. fees. A lot of people in the country, especially with deeply income inequality, don't have an extra 150 a month to, like... You know, say they have two kids that want to play, it's three hundred dollars a month, and like, yeah, like exactly. you're saying, like these like global clubs with global fan bases and global reach are have scouts traveling, you know, through six continents, like looking for players. I mean, there's great players from Africa, there's great players from South America, there's great players from Asia. Uh, Son from a uh, uh, South Korea today scored a huge goal for Tottenham um, against in the to knock Leicester out of the Champions League, and uh, well, technically it was an own goal, but it was really his goal. It went off the goalie and in. But, uh, you know, like he's like you, you have like they're traveling the world and they're finding players that have no like no like economic mobility in their communities and they're bringing them, you know, into their academies and giving them a chance. And even if maybe they don't play for Barcelona or don't play for Bayern Munich, they're going to play for somebody with that experience. Right. And, and, and the U.S. situation is just so different from that. Um, and there's a reason the U.S. men's national team just does not excel. Um, the women's national team is a different story. I love watching the women's national team. They're the best in the world. Um, and we can even talk more about that later in maybe even a third part to this. But um, the the men's team, you know, pales in comparison in terms of international performance because, you know, these working class Latino communities in places like Texas, places like California, aren't getting the investment that they need to be supported in playing high-level soccer, even though they come from cultures with, you know, the the you know longest historical uh, basis in, in playing yeah. these games and and, and 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 a love for these games. You know, there's there's people who will you know come to the U.S. from Mexico and not be able to play soccer um, at at a high level, even though they, you know, from age like two, were playing it in the street with their families. Um, and and if you think about soccer, you know. You don't need expensive pads or like a stick or anything like hockey or lacrosse um, or even football with like the pad gear. Um, and you, you just need a ball and some good, you know, cleats. And that that's pretty much about it. Yeah. But they find ways to make it expensive um, to, to play. Yeah. Um, Everything just in this country has to be monetized to the extreme and like, you know, to, to the detriment of like, art and sports and everything like you know like you can't be an artist in the united states and get paid for it you probably have to have two jobs while you while you learn it takes away from your time and i think it's the same with soccer and sports in general if you don't have an avenue to play with your kid through your school and that's another interesting thing is that you know like like in a college sports like a lot of a lot of uh, colleges just don't have men's sports soccer teams because they decided to like cut that you know for budgetary reasons but like because it's not a, pro a high profile sport in the united states historically but for a lot of people in the united states it is like you know this is a diverse country like this is uh in texas like you know especially like there's so many soccer fans in texas uh liga mx like the mexican uh league the top league like there's so many like like those matches when they come on like you go into a bar or restaurant and you'll see people crowd around tvs watching them like they're on it's it's ubiquitous so like you know with austin fc i've gone to watch parties for austin fc and the crowd is you know really diverse but you see a lot of those people like 
from the Latinos community in Austin coming out because like, hey, like it's their sport, you know, it's their sport as much as it is someone in England would think of it as their sport. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, it's just like, it's it's more of a like this, this shows this kind of blaze bare uh, the ways in which capitalism in the United States, like affects our quality of like of the things we produce our quality of life and everything else because you know there just aren't the avenues for poor kids to play a sport that should absolutely not cost money to play yeah. especially a lot of money to play yeah absolutely um you know it's uh that, that also goes into questions about like public funding and things of that sort because um you know if you're if you can't afford to play for like a premier club or like an academy or whatever in the u.s um, which again shouldn't cost money. It should be you know the the club should be making investments in the, in their communities. But if you can't afford that or, or or you don't live near something like that, what are your options? Uh, okay, play in your public high school. Um, but some districts don't have soccer. I I I I went to a pretty you know well funded school district, so I was able to play for my high school, and there were you know kids from from working class families um, and and a lot of uh, Latino kids who were on the team and did amazingly well because, um, you know, they're, they've been playing the sport their whole lives. But, um, I, I knew people in my same County or maybe one County over whose high school just didn't even have a soccer team. Um, so it's just, it, it's new in the U S and so we do need time to figure things out. But I think, uh, you know, it's, it, it's really important that if, if the MLS and, and U S soccer clubs are serious about like, upping the quality of play they really have to invest in in communities and and not be consumed by this like capitalist model yeah definitely uh, reminds me of my one of my good friends uh growing up and uh, still a good friend today uh he's a u.s born uh son of uh, salvadorian immigrants who came here to escape the civil war there in the 80s which was another talk for another episode largely instigated by the united states and cia but that's another story uh, but anyway, that's why they're here, and that's why he's here. And uh, you know, he was he was good at soccer. He was a goalie, uh, just like Bennett was a goaltender, and uh, like uh, played for the local high school. Uh, also, got to play for some club teams uh, on a scholarship uh, in like the Central Texas area. But you know, he he had he had like ways to do it. But you know, again, had to jump through hoops that like maybe like don't need to exist in order to play. Um, didn't go pro or anything, but just, you know, just had, just was, just had fun playing and like, uh, like actually learned a lot about the sport from him. Um, but yeah, so, you know, these, uh, this, this economic like barrier in the United States is like, again, when we impose our values with the super league or like global capitalist values, like with the United States as the global hegemon of that, uh, on a, on a, you know, on a global sports landscape that, you know, just doesn't really have a concept of this level of monetization of the sport. Uh, it naturally created this like actual crisis, this PR crisis. And it, again, like, it's amazing that the Super League existed basically for two days in reality. And then it was basically dead. Um, it was the, you know, it was, uh, so it was, it was fascinating, but yeah, like I'm, I'm personally glad it died cause I'm a big fan of the champions league. And also, you know, I don't think this excuses UEFA or FIFA or any governing body or the Premier League or anything of like any wrongdoing in their own rights. They need to like, you know, like address their own like corruption and, and issues that might exist within. But I'm just personally glad that it literally would have destroyed the sport at its highest level because the way the way like soccer or football is, is played in, the, in Europe in these uh, in the four major leagues and, and France is getting up there, too, is uh, like 
this the equal into to what the NBA represents for basketball. It's like absolutely like that they are the like it's absolutely far and beyond like you know anywhere else like in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And so we've uh we've talked a lot about um the politics of soccer in the US specifically and US style sports and and why it's, you know, can be problematic in terms of quality of play and and how it ties into capitalism. Um but if we're talking about politics and soccer, there is, you know, just a world of 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 content to critique out there about um you know, world soccer uh, between, you know, the the labor issues and the corruption of FIFA in terms of, you know, the executives there or like bids for the World Cup in Qatar um, or even, you know, the, the the historical grounding, which we talked a bit about of, you know, where clubs come from in Europe or the wildly variant politics of their fan clubs and their ultras. There's there's a lot out there that exists that we that we need to address as well. Um, so we'll be wrapping this, you know, U.S. focused episode up um here uh but this is not the end of our discussion on soccer we're going to have a second part solely focused on world soccer and you know there's a lot there so tune back in to that any any final thoughts uh i would just like to say uh personally just declare that i'm not an expert on on the sport or the subject it's something that i've really like spent the last several years learning about and uh but, you know, with my background being in geography and things like that, it just really uh, is the way I connected with it was seeing, you know, how global it is and how much it does like portray like a lot of cultural differentiation around the world. A lot of like and also within the sport, like like Ben just mentioned, like teams really represent their cities. But when you have multiple teams in a similar area, they start to represent like certain like you know, value systems, certain cultures and things like that. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about uh, the global uh, elements of the sport because there's been so many like, you know, they always talk about soccer wars. Well, that's like something that's kind of overblown, but there are a lot of moments in geopolitical history that either uh, were affected by the results of soccer matches or that uh, added a lot of tension to specific soccer matches. And it's going to be really cool to talk about that for sure. I'm sure we're we'll talking about the 94 World Cup. Uh, especially uh, we'll be talking about um, the history of the Israeli uh, soccer team and how that relates to the current uh, issues in the Middle East um, uh, that are going on. And, and like uh, we're talking about the history of like uh, with other countries within Europe, uh, World War II and how like, you know, like that was sort of a pause period for the sport, but also how the sport persisted through World War II and was and existed in fascist states as well. So there's gonna be a lot to talk about. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, when you start talking about soccer and politics, you, you just you start unearthing so much shit. It's like we do not have time for one episode. Yeah. This this needs like hell. This could be a whole series. Um, but we'll be wrapping it up here um, and leaving this open for for further development. Please do tune back in because we want to keep talking about this. Um, and one final note for all its faults in terms of you know the way capitalism falls onto it and corruption. Soccer, they call it the beautiful game for a reason. It's awesome. Um, you know, if you've never been to like a, a soccer match, you know, I know um, sport attendance has been down because of COVID, but go go to a soccer match. I mean, even go to like a, a minor league soccer match in like your locality or um, I don't know, I might have some listeners, you know, friends in the DFW area, go check out an FC Dallas game. 
Um, go check out an Austin FC game. It, it's really cool stuff. Um, really great sport. Yeah. And for all our talk earlier too about how like the MLS MLS lags behind uh, uh, a lot of European leagues, the fan culture and the fan experience. From my what I've noticed is that it's really gotten good and you have the supporters clubs who are singing and chanting and banging on drums uh, there's a lot of like that latin american influence and in how like uh how people are at games and like like you know with, with the way that the songs and the and the beats and stuff and and everything is like it's very cool it's a very much i think represents like the multi you know the uh, the multicultural like united states and in, in like i think a very positive way and i think it's a way for people to bond to connect within the communities uh, partly because the, the teams are so city-based and uh, I think that's really cool. Uh, so I'm excited just seeing what's doing in Austin. It's been a turbulent year to be in Texas, a turbulent year in Austin, but seeing how everyone is bonding uh, gradually over Austin FC, even before we have a home match, has been very cool to see. So yeah, back with Ben has said, it's, it's, worth, uh, it's worth getting into. 100%. Well, uh, we'll be wrapping it up there. Go Austin FC. Watch some soccer. Uh, I'm Ben. Jordan. And we will talk to you all next time.